Welcome to a very special episode of The Lost. I'll be brief. Razor and I initially recorded a Q&A session because we had stuff going all the way back to October, right after Scorpion Part 3. However, the whole mess turned out to be five plus hours, so we decided it was best to break this up into two separate pieces. We hope you enjoy. So we can do Q&A now if you'd like. I think we should. There's a... There's a bit of a backlog going on up there. Oh, yes. And I haven't had time to um, mm -hmm. prune all the conversation out of the mm -hmm. Q&A channel. There's been quite a bit of it. Yeah. Much of which you've indulged in. Just I, I do. I tend to answer the questions right in the channel if they've been ones we've done before. But anyway, at the top of this list. All right. Uh, back... And this is going back to October, October. the fucking 10th. Yeah. Yikes. All right, strap okay, ourselves so. in. Cartoo the Low asks, <laughs> With MK11 to be the final game in this trilogy, what is your personal opinion, what in your personal opinion, would be a satisfying conclusion that could potentially make everyone happy? In my opinion, the way MK11 should end is with uh, the young Liu Kang and Kung Lao uh, beating Dark Raiden as, like, the final boss fight. I just, I really want to see Liu Kang become the main hero again. Deadly Alliance was 2002. It's been that long since he's been the main character. I think that's enough time. <laughs> In my opinion... Well, we know now that Kronika is the main villain of this, and it's been a while since... Well, sure, since... but Brainiac was the end boss of Injustice 2, and yet the final uh, story mode chapter is actually either Batman beating Superman or Superman beating Batman. Right. Let's assume Kronika gets her head beat in. I would like it if both timelines were to merge to put all this horrible Crisis on Infinite Earths crap behind us. I mean, I, th I think we both want a timeline merge. I'm we just do. hoping that... NRS's idea of the best version of each character is the same as ours. Hopefully. I think that what's going to happen is that we're going to get Young Lu and Young Kung Lao as our protagonists again going forward. Because we're probably going to follow them back in time. I think this is going to end up with one of those things where they have no memory of what's in front of them. I would like to see that after whatever their adventures in the present are... And however time has changed during the original trilogy, we get like a montage of little differences moving from MK1 to the present at the end to show how like history is a little bit different, not too much yeah. different, but it's how we get to a point where like Liu Kang and Katana were never rev revenants and all that kind of thing. Hopefully we still manage to avoid Armageddon and lead us down the third interesting path. Because I, I don't yeah. think that we're, I don't think that we're continuing from here. I think the reason we all expect uh, a merging of timelines is because it's pretty obvious they don't want to retell all the Anaga stuff. Yeah. So they're looking for ways to skip over it and have this game end in a present where uh, Cassie's team exists, but also... Uh, fan favorite characters who are dead are no longer dead or evil or whatever it is that makes them different from the preferred status quo version. Now, 
he asks a satisfying conclusion that could potentially make everyone happy. I don't think that there's any any way to make everyone happy. That's just not a thing that happens. No, there's, there's no such thing as making everyone happy. No, I'm afraid not. <laughs> I mean, the only thing that would actually make me happy at the end of a Mortal Kombat game is if Kwai Liang and Serena kissed. <laughs> <laughs> a little friendship theme playing. I am just so tired of his storyline standing the fuck still. He needs to have a kid already. Now, you give me that, and then you cut to, like, smoke lying on a Malibu beach, sipping a pina colada. <laughs> no part of him mechanical or demonic. Then I'm happy to. No, uh, really. I think we're due for a probable reboot, and I guess we'll just see how it goes. Maybe we'll get, like, another revisiting of MK1. Maybe Cassie's team will come back in the past. But what's going to make everyone happy is having as many people to work with as possible. Yeah, I just, I don't want, I don't want Evil Lou and Katana anymore. I want to go back, for the Revenants in particular, I want to see them restored to being good guys at the end. And like, that's really the most important thing. But there are like little things too that would ruin it. Like if, if Noob Saibot ever becomes a human Bihan again. That ruins it for me. If um, if certain characters die, that ruins it. If if Raiden doesn't die, that ruins it. <laughs> See, I've got no problem uh, with Raiden getting knocked back to his senses. I mean, I'd be okay with restoring him to good Raiden, I guess. But it would be a huge letdown because it would mean he's standing still. Like, I just, the thing I want in stories. The, the reason storytelling exists is because seeing people grow and change over time is like, that's what it's all about. Yes. Development. But we've seen Raiden do so much screwed up things and be corrupted down this path. And, you know, we're all taking it for granted that Scorpion versus Scorpion, Johnny meeting Young Johnny. And I really, I am really looking forward to actually seeing, hopefully... Raiden versus Raiden, if that's a thing that happens. The the problem with young Raiden versus old Raiden, or current Raiden, is that, yeah, one of them is, like, corrupted, but the other was an idiot who made a bunch of mistakes, so who's the good guy in that fight? <laughs> well... Unless, unless it's before he received the he must win message. Like, that's the only time Raiden is a pure hero, is before the he must win message. That's what I'm thinking. So making everyone happy, not a chance. A satisfying conclusion? Various person to person. But I think yeah. most of us would like to see an ending after this. There is there is a complex latticework yes. of cause and effect to consider, and a lot goes into it that I don't know. Can't be done, it's... man. Can't be done. I don't know if it's possible for a, a person to be 100% happy. <laughs> Much less everybody. Jodan72 asks, Is Quan really dead, or do you think he put his soul into the amulet of Shinnok? That's what I always figured. No, he's dead. He's fucking dead. He's down there, son. I He better be dead. I really... <laughs> I see what you're saying, and no, sir, I don't like it. 
I don't like any more avenues, back doors, yeah, trap no, no doors. Yeah, no more loopholes for him. Let's just let Quan Chi be dead for a bit, eh? <laughs> it's enough. Please, dear God. I think he's really dead. And what scares me about this particular question is that, yes, it's a thing he could do, but I really fucking hope he didn't. Yeah, exactly. Like, I almost feel like every time we just say the name Quan Chi, we're making it more likely that he could come back. Like, the trick is that he must become Voldemort, he who must not be named. Let's not talk about Quan Chi anymore. Well, Ultra Gamer Ring asks, is the holiday pack coming back in Christmas? I don't know, maybe. No. I don't... I'm not maybe a fan of, like... For MK11? I'm not a fan of holiday costumes and stuff like that. I would rather just have canon outfits. You're gonna get, like, some sort of Christmas tower... I don't really want, like, Soccer Johnny, and I know that Cyborg is in love with Day of the Dead Katana, but I don't need Halloween costumes, man. I like Day of the Dead Aaron Black. That works. Eh, I guess. I would rather have them spend the time and the resources on giving me, like, Deception Sub-Zero, you know? So you're telling me that you wouldn't spend five ninety-nine on Scorpion in a Santa hat? No, the only way that uh, that would end up on my hard drive is if it was part of a pack and I bought the pack. Card to the low again. In this new timeline with Quan Chi, <sighs> being the only means of bringing characters back to life and now with him being dead, do we think they will come up with another mean of, means of bringing dead characters back to life or do you think they will leave them permanently dead till they decide to reboot the timeline by continuing with a new generation? Okay, we've covered this. So there's a couple things at work in this question. One of them is the assumption that only Quan Chi could restore the revenants to human. And that's not true. In the arcade endings, Kung Lao restores himself just by meditating. If you believe Quan Chi when he says he's the only way dead people can come back yeah, to no, life. There's also there's also a million other ways. Like one of them could find Ashra's sword and kill enough demons to purify themselves. Like, if, if Nightwolf were to get back in touch with the spirits, there's a whole chapter of Deception Conquest where he teaches Shujinko how to purge sin from yourself through meditation. The idea that only by, like, combining Raiden's magic with Quan Chi's magic was the only way to fix them was always bullshit. And I've said that many times. Shinnok's head is a literal infinite source of negative energy. <laughs> I've said this many times That's too. True. Like if you need if you need necromancy, like access to an evil necromancer, just use Shinnok's head. That's where Quan Chi got his magic from in the first place. From Shinnok. There you go. So yes, there are plenty of ways to bring people back to life. Do not believe this bald bastard. Do not believe his lies. Mm. He is a liar. Yeah. The other, uh, the other answer I have for this question is that I think it's pretty obvious that this game gives us a big loophole, uh, MK11, where you can either kill the Revenant and leave their younger self in the present to replace them, or you could go back in time to prevent them from having died and become a Revenant in the first place. So there you go. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think we will see either or both in this game. <laughs> gonna be a hell of a lot of mirror matches. That's gonna be the theme of this game. Yeah. Next. Ishii, Sai. This is pertaining to 
a potential prequel game to MK. Yeah. Which characters would you like to see in it? What stages? And who would you make the bosses, but most importantly, the story? This is a question or discussion that comes up once in a while. Would you like to see a game about Great Kung Lao or about the um, Jared and Sindel era? Yeah, I'd be up for it. Um, I don't know if it would sell that well just because of how hard it would be to work a lot of the series' most popular. Like, uh, you couldn't have Bihan or Kwai Liang, but you could have a Sub-Zero exist during Great Kung Lao's time. You couldn't have Scorpion. You could have someone yeah, you from could have Takeda, Scorpion. like Conquest did, but you could do him right. <laughs> I mean, one assumes that they would take maybe some of that concept art of, like, Johnny's ancestor or Kenji's ancestor. Yeah, the ancestor. lady in the spacesuit who's supposedly from the ancient past despite the spacesuit. <laughs> and apparently going blind runs in the family. <laughs> Hopefully they'll correct a few oversights that are a little bit obvious, <laughs> such as those. I wonder if Kano's great-granddaddy had his eye punched out, too. I would like to see the Great Kung Lao era. I think the the biggest problem with it is that we already know the ending of that game. Goro wins. <laughs> well, we have novels like John Dies at the End, and there's prequel movies left and right. I have no problem. I've known that Kung Lao dies for 20-plus years. I'd like to actually control him and see him what, in the fight. And what see I've always are. wanted to Roll see kicks and... is uh, a sort of adventure game, or I don't know what engine would be best for this. Maybe something like Hitman, where you play as Kitana and Melina and Jade in across like Outworlds history, and the game ends like it's Shao sending them uh, to assassinate rebels and dissidents and so you get like the accurate version of melina's backstory where her and katana grew up as sisters a thousand years ago and the very last mission would be like katana is sent to murder an the leader of an adenian village because he's like a rebel or harboring rebels or something and then when you go to kill him he reveals that he he knows, like, he used to work in the castle under Jared and Sindel, and he knows that Shao Kahn isn't your real father. Like, the game ends with her realizing, finding out the truth about her history, and and it's like the tease of, well, I can't act on that information right now, so I have to pretend I'm still loyal to Khan until Mortal Kombat 2. All of that, yes. I've always wanted a Katana Molina Jade game in Outworld. But for me, I think it'd be more about, like, exploring, and I'd have it be kind of an open-world deal. Like, the best part of Shaolin Monks was exploring Outworld and how they made the stages feel like real locations in a world. Yeah. I want more of that back. I want to be able to actually set, like, set sail across a sea of blood. Like, started earlier in their lives. Like, the beginning, uh chapters of the game are katana is young like a uh, early teens and it's shao Kahn forcing her to train and learn to kill and then like as she gets older she meets melina and it's like oh here's your long lost sister kidnapped and murdered but we found her wandering in the wasteland and he's like hmm this story doesn't quite add up <laughs> also don't ever ask her to take her veil off yeah she's uh Never. 
She's real sensitive. She was born with a deformity. You two are going to have to wear masks from now on. So that, you know, moral support. But why should I have to work? To make her feel better. To make her feel better. Yes. <laughs> and also because you're twins and you can use that to trick people when you're killing them. Stages. Who would we make the bosses? Yeah. Um. Well, I think for a Katana Molina Jade game, you'd have like the last level would be fast forward to Mortal Kombat 2 and the boss would actually be like Katana fights Molina. That would be a way to finish things off. I'm not sure where I'd actually end it. Yeah. You know? I might actually go all the way through up to, like, Ultimate. I think you could do that. I think it gets tricky the longer you make the game. You want to you wanna make it end at a thematically appropriate place. Because if you're just doing Katana's life all the way to, like, Armageddon, you're sort of losing track of what the plot was about. And then it's just about watching her life get worse and worse after a certain point. Yeah. And as much as the idea of, like, a post credit sting where Melina's in the Netherrealm working under Shinnok, that's a sting for a game that came out 20 years ago. And also, like, if you were to do just a straight fighting game set in Great Kung Lao's time, um, there's two ways to do it. Either the bosses are obviously Goro and Shang Tsung, or you could actually make Great Kung Lao the boss and make Goro playable. Or you could do you could do the Street Fighter Alpha thing where every character has a specific boss tailored to them at the top of their ladder. You could probably make a, a mythology's Shang Tsung game out of this. Where like you start by getting your ass kicked by Great Kung Lao. <laughs> and then it becomes a theme until you finally bring Goro in to take care of business, you know? I could I could see a game about early in Shang Tsung's life and actually exploring him working out. I mean, back in the day, after Mythologies came out, they used to ask uh, Tobias what character he would want to do a Mythologies-style game about next. And obviously the one he ended up picking was Sonya and Jax, but he used to say either Liu Kang or Baraka was the one he was interested in doing. And I think now, the Baraka we have in Eleven would lend itself very well to a game sort of like Shadows because he's more orc than he's ever been. All right, so Ishii's next question is regarding Mortal Kombat cosmology. So you know how different dimension, how the realms are different dimensions layered around each other? Like Earth and Outworld are planets in different dimensions, not in the same one? So when Shao Kahn conquers a realm, does he literally merge the planet with his own? Or does he bring that desolated planet into his own dimension and it's kind of like a satellite moon to his own world. I'm thinking the former because Outworld's landscape seems to always be comprised of different things. The wastelands are Katana's former homeworld of Edenia. Swampy region to the south of that map that Vogel drew looks like what remains of Zotero. Yes, so in the 3D era, uh, there was a map in the crypt, and it's also in the Shaolin Monk's instruction booklet of Outworld. And on that map, there are sections like the Shokan territories over here. And the Living Forest is over there. And here's a section called Lost Edenia. And stuff like that. So I think it's fairly obvious that when Shao Kahn merges a world with Outworld, it literally physically adds to the landmass of the planet Outworld. Like, the planet gains new land. And that land contains landmarks and stuff from the world that was conquered. For example... 
in Shaolin Monks, we find out that uh, the castle on the other side of the river in the Wasteland stage from MK2 is an Edenian castle. That's where Jared and Sindel used to live. So right there, that's an Edenian building, a landmark that has that is now part of Outworld. Uh, there's other examples of this, and actually, like in the movie Annihilation, dumb non-canon, etc. But still, as Shao Kahn is merging uh, Earth with Outworld, you see the um, the Eiffel Tower appear in Outworld. <laughs> I always actually really like that as a touch. Yeah, and we also see it in MK9 that the city of New York starts to gain outworld buildings in the in the landscape. Mm -hmm. Natara's whole thing was needing to actually find an orb buried in lava which bound Vaternus to Shao Kahn's realm. Yeah. So there was something physical in that world that maintained the connection between the two. Even in the original MK3, you see in the city skyline that Shao Kahn's fortress has become part of New York. It's always been a case of literally incorporating various pieces and parts from other worlds into Outworld. Yeah. It's literally merging the worlds. Yeah, Out Outworld is a puzzle. Mm -hmm. And it's made of, of multiple pieces. different puzzles. Like, the pieces don't fit right. And... I think it would be interesting if they explored more about, like, the weird supernatural effects that has on the landscape. Like, maybe if you were in a part of Outworld that was jungle, and then you cross a border, and all of a sudden you're in an Arctic tundra, and it's like, these two climates can't exist side by side. How, how the fuck? And it's like, it's Outworld. It's not supposed to be this way, but it is. And I'd like it to actually stay that way. Outworld shouldn't make sense. Like... One thing that, like, the Roven novel gets right is, like, describing Shao Kahn's fortress. The geometry is all non-Euclidean and, like, looking at it too long, turning corridors that are actually straightaways. You spend too much time thinking about it and staring at it, and you actually get a headache. Yeah, I'd actually like to see, like, the M.C. Escher staircase effect in places of Outworld, because you're... Yeah. You've supernaturally merged two planets together, and they don't fit right, and so the seam between them bends the laws of physics. I think I think Outworld needs a lot more of that um, broken puzzle flavor and that the worst thing you can do when depicting Outworld, because it's supposed to be the most fantasy place in the franchise, is to make it more grounded and realistic, which is what MKX did. And that's why everybody's like, bring back the purple. <laughs> purple is a code word for everything supernatural, horrific, yeah, creepy, like, unsettling, and wrong. Like just making the last it, thing Outworld should be is normal. Just making it look like uh, the medieval Middle East and putting like some mutant tigers there is not anywhere near enough. It needs to be twisted and monstrous and full Dungeons and Dragons. One of the many reasons I'm looking forward to Eleven. Looking like we're getting back there. I certainly hope so. Sai slash Ishi again. I think I think he just goes by Sai these days. I guess he he'll change his screen name again one day, and we're all going to be confused again. What would the ideal protagonist of a next generation cast be from our perspectives? The ideal protagonist of a next gen cast. I think from where we're standing right now, assuming that we were to go forward into the current timeline and not back and not reboot, I would actually like it to be Takeda. I favor either Takeda or Jin. 
And that's nothing against Cassie or Jackie. It's just I'm tired of the special forces having the limelight. Yeah. I want this to be about, like, clans again. I like Cassie as a character. I just don't like the way the green aura was written. And I just, I personally feel that the main character of the Mortal Kombat universe should not be a blonde Caucasian person. Agreed. MK is a franchise founded on Eastern mysticism. And we do need to get back to that. Yeah. But if you were to ask me, honestly, like looking at the various tries over the years to introduce a new generation cast, it started with MK4 with Kai and Fujin. I actually like the theory behind that. Like the execution, you know, obviously didn't work the way they wanted and that's why Kai has not appeared in any other games but Armageddon after 4. But the idea of Liu Kang retiring to a mentor position and that his student could become the next main character, I think is a better idea than it being someone's son or daughter. Well, I was going off of currently existing characters, but I do agree with you there. But if MK has to, like skip forward enough in time that people have sons and daughters. I think there are only three couples that it made sense to give kids. Um, Liu Kang and Katana, Sonya and Johnny, and Sub-Zero and Serena. Those are the only three canon hero couples in the entire franchise. I think it was weird. I don't hate it. I just think it was a weird thing to suddenly drop in our laps the retcon that Jax has had a wife and kid all along. I don't particularly mind it. Like, I'm okay with uh, Kenshi having fathered a bastard one day off in his travels and that kid showing up. We've talked before about uh, my problem with Jin being that uh, Kung Lao in the old timeline was the last of his family tree. He had no living relatives. So him having a cousin doesn't make sense. I actually think, though, that there is a a window in the story between MK3 and MK4 when Kung Lao is living as a hermit and letting everyone think he's dead. If he had fathered a son during that time and Jin was that son, I think that would be a good character premise. Potentially. I might take the angle of setting up potential Frost and Takeda story in the future i mean for for the universe we have now i have said many times that i think frost should have been on the combat kids team because the potential uh chemistry or rivalry between her and takeda is yeah too good to miss it's out obvious on. but there's kind of a commentary that you could make there on the dangers of reawakening old feuds because if anyone's likely to do that it's yeah. very much frost like, as we saw, she almost did. Indeed. Which is weird, because why does she care about the Shirai Ryu? They were long dead when she joined. She's just, <laughs> you know, deep inside, she's just... Did she, like, read a book about Lin Kuei history and decide to care all of a sudden? She's angry and has a lot to prove. But it's really about putting things to herself, is what I take away from her. So, our next question comes to us courtesy of Card of the Low once again. How do you think it would have affected the MK franchise had Blaze never existed? 
Well, they'd have to find a different boss for Armageddon. That's the key. But I think they still would have told that story. Yeah, I think I figured the same thing. It was a way to wrap up the series up to that point, and Blaze was just kind of in the right place at the right time. It it would have been Shao Kahn or Shinnok or something. I don't think they looked at Blaze and went, I have an idea for a game. I think they had an idea for a game, and then they said, uh, we've got this Blaze guy, we can stick him in there. They plainly had plans to make him the end boss, at least I think, when they were developing Unchained. But when they first... Yeah, they they definitely... Well, Unchained came out at the same time as Armageddon, Was it simultaneous development? I think it might have been slightly after. Okay. Because the way I remember it is I played Armageddon first, and I was confused how Frost's Ice Cube got to the Lin Kuei Temple from Outworld. And then Unchained came out and explained it, and I'm like, this is dumb, but fine. (laughs) (laughs) At least it was something. No, I, I only played Unchained later on because at the time, I just... I wasn't placing focus on PSP games or anything. Yeah, I mean, I never would have played Unchained if it weren't for Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core, because that's what I bought my PSP for. Yep, same thing for me, among other things. And I think it was actually out for quite some time before I went before I found out that, like, Jax and Katana were playable. I'm like, okay, this might be worth my time. So there you go. Probably not that much different in terms of Armageddon, but... We'd yeah. probably still have rebooted up to this point. Next from B Radbrad, double eight and double nine. Why is Noob different looking from the other revenants? And I would posit that we both assume that he is in fact not a revenant in the traditional sense of the term. So if you read the bios uh chronologically, like from Deception and then to MK9, uh Deception calls him a Wraith. And then MK9 explains that a Wraith is a type of Revenant. So what it is, is that Revenant is actually a category. Any undead that can think for itself and still has a body is a Revenant. Like, if you can think but you don't have a body, you're a ghost. If you have a body but you can't think, you're a zombie. If you have both, you're a Revenant. And Revenant is an umbrella, and under that umbrella there are specters like Scorpion, guys with fire powers. There are wraiths, like Noob Cybot, guys with shadow powers. And then all the ones in X, generic guys. I think that also the mode of reincarnation or corruption is actually very different. Because specifically in Noob Cybot's case... Yeah. Quan Chi did not have to do a lot of corrupting already, because his path was already set. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, everybody in X had to be, like corrupted the same way that Sindel had to be corrupted when she was brought back in MK3 because those were good guys in order for them to behave like netherrealm minions you have to like mind control them and twist their personalities but when scorpion was turned undead his personality wasn't changed he still acts like he was as hanzo hazashi and when uh, bihan became noob saibot his corruption isn't mind control. That's who he actually is. He's just not pretending to be... He's not held back by any shackles of conscience anymore. Yeah. Like, when he when he was alive and he worked for the Lin Kuei, he sort of wasn't willing to admit that he was a psychopath. Precisely. He would always, like, deny it and make up excuses when people would accuse him of doing bad things in mythologies. But when he became Noob Saibot, he stopped making excuses and just admitted, all right, this is who I am now. And this goes back to the first time that they revealed that the two were the same character. 
They specify that yeah. Cybot actually desires to remain in the Nether Realm. Yeah, that's why that's why Ashra wanted to kill him. He's one of the most evil people in the Nether Realm because he's evil by choice. And so, if she had killed him with her magic sword, she would have gotten more of a boost from it than from killing any other demon. So to cut it short, like Noob is essentially of a different kind of reborn species than the rest of them are. You can look at it that way. He's he's wholly yeah. a creature of shadow, and these guys are like zombies. You know, they're not the and same that, and kind of undead. I always say that I don't agree with people who want Noob to be brought back to life. Because, first of all, if you lost Noob Saibot's moveset, that's the most interesting thing about him. That's a, a shame to lose that. Then you just have two Sub-Zeros, but one of them's a bad guy. And the other thing is, like, those people all think that if Bihan came back to life, he could turn good. And that is not true. Bihan was a dick. <laughs> I don't have issues with the notion of subs of Bihan being alive and being Sub-Zero, but not in this timeline. I wouldn't deprive us of Noob for the world, especially when we already have Sub-Zero running around up there. I'd like to have a couple of games that explore an evil Sub-Zero running around, but I wouldn't sacrifice Noob for the world. And hopefully what happened once would happen again. And I actually do also believe, incidentally, that... Somehow, if Noob was in the same field of unrevenanting that Jax and Scorpion were, you'd see things the way you saw with Scorpion. Like, there'd be a different kind of visual effect to show his transformation back, if that had actually happened. Next up. So, next question, Cartuthalo again. With Raiden likely to be the main antagonist of MK11, and with Cassie having the green energy, which allows her to take down gods with little to no effort, how would you go about Ra making Raiden a viable end boss? Okay, so the first thing we need to say is that this question <laughs> came to us before yes. uh, the MK11 reveal event, and now we know that Chronica is the end boss of the game. However, hypothetically, in Injustice 2, Brainiac was the end boss, but story mode actually ends with uh, either Batman fighting Superman or Superman fighting Batman after Brainiac is defeated. So... Holding out that hope. End boss on the ladder doesn't necessarily mean end boss in story mode, and there could still be a big fight with Dark Raiden. And maybe all you really have to do in terms of gameplay is just unlock all the variations at once, because he's already very frightening to fight against if he's not holding back. I mean, yeah. I bitch about it, but there's a reason that they made Displacer a variant and gave his teleport only there. Raiden, Raiden does have a lot of moves, and if he had them all at once, he would be pretty broken. If you amplify everything he's already... Like, in terms of story, he's already there. Raiden with Shinnok's amulet is a terrifying concept. And if he decided to hop into the Jinsei oh, yeah. and, and be further somehow, or, like, got a hold of, Jesus, I don't know, the Dragon Medallion, probably wouldn't work for him, but I mean... <laughs> If Raiden just started collecting all the medallions and just starts stabbing himself with all the Kami Dogu daggers, he's got he's got like Akuma's bead necklace, but all the beads are a different fucking amulet. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that time that Ultimo Dragon came out on WCW Nitro and he had nine title belts <laughs> from Japan. <laughs> ah, wrestling! I can see it now. Shungoku Satsu, but it's just made of lightning, and Raiden's there just channeling energy from all sections of the screen for his wind pose marvelous <laughs> so i mean th there it is he's he's already got the tools and storyline wise he's he's yeah. all i mean he's pretty the, much there the thing about the thing about how would he be a challenge to cassie is simple just don't have cassie be the last chapter of the game the person who should fight dark raiden is probably Liu kang anyway now 
hypothetically, Johnny's from the Mediterranean cult, which bred warriors for the gods. I would like it if if they kind of shook things up and specified that maybe Raiden already knew about these kinds of god-killing machines and maybe had a way to nullify her power. That would be interesting to me. Much as I don't have problems with Johnny or Cassie having these powers specifically, I would take away that uh, bit of auto-win functionality to make it interesting. I always thought when they revealed uh, the Mediterranean cult stuff in his MK9 ending, I thought that when they got to Shinnok, what they should do, and it's obviously too late to do this, this is fanfiction now, is they should have said that the cult worshipped Hades, and that Hades is another name for Shinnok, and that Johnny's ancestors, the souls that he's using for his shadow powers, are in the nether realm. And that's why when he gets angry or desperate or does an EX move, the shadows are red. Because there's actually something tainted or evil about them, and that would allow Shinnok to actually, like, manipulate him or defeat him more easily. He would have been a red herring hero rather than the guy who beats Shinnok. I think that would have been more interesting because it would have, like, created a more desperate underdog situation. Well, I don't know if it's necessarily too late to say that Shinnok might also be Hades. I mean, it's not. I just think it's because when you use the word cult... A cult is like a small religious sect that worships a god that not everybody else likes. That You have to do it in secret. And in the Mediterranean, that's obviously like Greece or Rome, somewhere in that area. So I'm just thinking, okay, so like the cult should be to like a god who's not that popular or who is evil, like Hades. All right. And Hades would be another name for Shinnok in this universe, the way like... Hauka. Raiden also goes by Hayoka, and some of the legends about Zeus and Thor are, like, mistold stories about him. Because Shinnok is also, um... I mean, we've talked about this before, but one of the big things in uh, the MK uh, setting is that the world's mythologies, all of the human religions, are sort of like a game of telephone, that somebody (laughs) heard a thing and got it wrong. So, for example... In the in MK canon, uh, the Nether Realm used to be controlled by a guy named Lucifer. And when Shinnok turned against the gods and was kicked out of heaven and into hell, he took the throne from this Lucifer guy. So on Earth, we heard guy kicked out of heaven and the name Lucifer and combined them. And so that's the the myth of Satan. Yep. But it's actually just a a misunderstood story about Shinnok. Next up. How would we feel if NRS decided to turn Jackie into the first female cyborg ninja? Well, I don't know why ninja in her case. <laughs> because they just go hand I in mean, hand. I mean, I guess it's see. automatically a ninja. If it's Sector associated does it. with them, right? Yeah. Like if he's captured by the Tekunin is the premise here? I suppose. Um, Assuming they were just, like, automating anyone that they could get their hands on, and, like, Jackie was first, I guess. I mean, uh, the thing about... That's from Car to the Low, incidentally. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. The thing about cyborgs is that they don't have to be cyber ninjas. Kano also qualifies as a cyborg. Jax qualifies as a cyborg. Anybody whose body combines machinery with organics is a cyborg. All you have to do is be part human, part robot to be a cyborg. And again, ask me how to fix Jackie. 
I think that in her backstory, she should have, instead of joining the army, been a professional athlete who lost her legs in a Outworld or Netherrealm attack and has cybernetic legs. Now, I'm assuming that the question is posed to us in terms of her becoming like Cyrax and Sector, that she'd have like the Predatorish mask and the BMX yeah, gear. If she did like get captured by the Takunin and become a cyber ninja, I actually don't think I'd hate it. It's not the most creative way to go. I wouldn't want it. Because like you said, Jackie's problems don't stem from visual problems or problems with her moveset so much as they come from her being a character whose entire story is founded on Daddy didn't want me to join the army, but I did anyway. And also, I'm a love interest. Being a cyber ninja is not cruise control for cool. And when you do that, I think that you also dilute what makes Cyrax and Sector special. Yeah, the problem with Jackie is that she copies off other characters. This is just more of the same. It wouldn't, it yeah. wouldn't work. You have to make her interesting as a character to really sell her. And turning her into a cyber ninja wouldn't work any more or less than it would for anyone else. I don't want to see that. I'm just thinking that if you had to... If Ed got it in his head that cyber ninjas are most interesting when they're created from people who are already on the roster, because he does seem to think that, of everybody on the roster, Jackie is the only one I would want to see automated other than Smoke. But it's still not a great idea. Not. Yeah, I I can even think of characters I'd probably prefer to see automated more than Jackie, to be quite mm, honest. I don't, I don't think there's anybody. I really think it should just be Sector, Cyrax, Smoke. And if it has to be someone else, honestly, Jackie's the only one I could see sacrificing to that dark god of boonness. <laughs> I might take Cyber Jarek because I don't give a shit either way. No, it, would, it, would, it would help him kill people more efficiently, I guess. <laughs> it would just be trying to force Jarek to be interesting. Not even new armor and axes and a storyline that actually no, centered around finishing moves could do that. This wouldn't do it either. The cure for this character is dumb is not a complete non-sequitur out of left field. Yeah. And, you know, my problem with Cyber Sub-Zero, well, one of a few, I can actually understand why people who are new to this franchise might find it shocking and interesting and a genuine surprise. But for people like myself and Razor, who A, treasure the character and have for like 20 years plus, and B, have seen it before, regardless of what we think should and shouldn't happen now, it's pulling the same rabbit out of a hat. Yeah. So, no thank you. Well, I mean, my problem with it for Sub-Zero was always that from MK3 to Deadly Alliance and Deception, the writing for Sub-Zero in those games is the best character development-based writing the franchise has ever had. And Cyber Sub just derails it. See, it's a fun experiment, but even if the reception had been unanimously positive, it never would have stuck. Recognizability and marketability. Yeah. Cyber Sub-Zero is not a permanent concept. It's not something that can stick. Yeah, no, Sub-Zero is basically Mickey Mouse. His face has to be on the front cover all the time. Yep. Him and Scorpion have to pretty much be recognizable because they are mascots. I'm getting a couple questions about that soon. So next, Urethra. 
I love that username, by the way. Uh, do you? Because I, I do too. Yuri Thra. Didn't Very Scarlet nice. have an appearance as a cyborg in the PS Vita game? Yes, she did, as a matter of fact. She is a red Cyrax, and all of her blood moves are disabled. I don't remember what the text for that mission was. I remember that in base MK9, a cyber reptile's mission is actually just reptile put some armor on from a dead cyborg to disguise himself. In the Vita, it says simply, Scarlet has become part of the cyber initiative. She can no longer infuse her attacks with blood and is now weakened. Hmm. It's a handicap and she's literally red Cyrax with her battle stance. I feel like, uh... I feel like if you caught Sec- er, Scarlet and tried to put her on an operating table and cut into her, couldn't she just ooze off? I guess if you manage to keep her unconscious the entire time, it could be done. But that's dumb. Maybe she'd turn into oil instead of blood? No, no, thank you. But to answer the question, yes. Yes, it did happen. I mean, it happened in the Challenge Tower, which isn't canon. <laughs> I wish some things out of that canon were true, like Melina's teddy bear. Yeah. That was nice. Yeah, I missed the teddy bear. I'd like that as a running joke. So the Gab Standard, next. Apologies if this has already been answered and I missed it, but I'm curious to know whether you think the whole Melina clone army is actually canon or not. If not, should it be canon? I think if you're looking for a way to bring Melina back that doesn't involve Kronika's time travel stuff, the idea of Shang Tsung having an army of Melinas is actually kind of cool to me. Especially because it's Shang Tsung. Because... One of the problems I've always had with Melina's story is that, yes, she was created for Khan, and Khan is her adopted dad, basically, but Shang Tsung's her actual father. He created her, and I, I, I've i always wished that she would get to a point where she'd get over Khan and kind of acknowledge Shang. See, I kind of want anyone who is not Liu Kang to acknowledge Shang. It would be <laughs> nice for him to have some, some actual relationship with someone who isn't Shao Kahn or Liu Kang. From actually develop some connections, so I wouldn't mind seeing that kind of uh, tether between the two of them. Yeah, it's a nice idea. I wonder what kind of relationship he, relationship he has with Reptile. He's his bodyguard every now and then. I imagine. I imagine Shang's relationship with Reptile is that he treats him the worst. <laughs> Probably because Reptile is like directly his slave. Ugh, poor bastard. But should it be canon? Obviously, it's. Not going to be now. I feel like if it were... I mean, the window isn't completely closed on that. I mean, there are rumors going around that she might be part of the final roster. She's... If she's not, she's almost certainly DLC. Yeah. And we definitely are expecting Shang Tsung to show up too, whether main roster or DLC. It would be funny to have a cutscene or two of just an army of Melinas running rampant. <laughs> yeah. Melina would love it. I think Melina's fans would love it. <laughs> I think there's room for it. I wouldn't mind it. I wouldn't want it to be an ongoing plot device, but sure. Throw it in a couple of chapters. I'm not going to hate it. Yeah, yeah, it would be a fun thing to do. Red Viper is next. How do we feel about the spear being a chain now? Do we think it'll ever go back to being rope? Oh god, I hate the chain so much. So... We actually just talked about this earlier in this episode. We did, we did. Uh, and generally, I think we both agree that we like the rope better. But Eleven is the first time that I'm warming up to the chain because he's doing that make it red hot and cut people with it thing. It is a good use of it. 
I don't think it'll ever actually go back to being rope. I'd be pleasantly surprised if it... No, I think they've just decided it's chain from now on. If it ever did happen, it would be during a reboot. Yeah. I miss the whistling noise. I really do. Mm-hmm. It's like if you took Ryu saying Hadouken and cut off the last syllable. <laughs> just, shit's not right, man. DJ, one month, Timmy G. What would you say is the game where Scorpion was at his peak, and what is the game where Scorpion was at his worst? Again, this is something that we've covered in the last few episodes. So I think we may have already answered this in a roundabout way. <laughs> to break it down, I believe that we both agree that MKX Scorpion is some of the best he's ever been. That That, that is the game for me. Yeah. Uh, Story-wise, uh, Living Hanzo is a high point. I'm also a huge fan of MK2 and 3 Scorpion, the Vow of Protection. I also really liked him as the champion of the Elder Gods in Deception. I enjoyed Deception. It was promising. I wish it had gone somewhere. And he was a very, very interesting and fun character to me when he first started out. It's just that, well, Deadly Alliance is the only game where I really have a problem with him because he's just doing the same thing that we expect him to do. At least he's like a good guy chasing a bad guy in Deadly Alliance. He's not like being deceived anymore so he doesn't come across as like a sucker <laughs> but it is scorpion gets slapped around the game yeah he's just, just single-mindedly stubbornly hunting getting his ass kicked back on the trail hunting get his ass kicked back on the trail hunting i am very much against armageddon the whole the whole thing yeah not not the whole game armageddon but the whole everything about scorpion in armageddon and, I mentioned before, I don't hate it, assuming that his wife and son were part of that resurrected clan for some reason. I could see him being angry enough. But I don't for me, know. For I... me, it's Deadly Alliance. Couldn't stand it. Gameplay-wise, uh, I have a different answer. I think that the 3D era is my favorite Scorpion until 11, because I, I've always loved the, the Hellfire backflip kick, the way he, like, skates forward before he does the flip. I just really like that animation for some reason. But now that he's actually doing the thing I've always asked for, the spinning rope dart, I think Eleven is obviously the best scorpion we've ever gotten. Pretty much. There's that. Oh, wait Wait till you guys play that. It's so much fun. It's all I wanted to do during my matches. Just walk forward, whoop, 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 whoop. And for gameplay... It's probably also the majority of the 3D era for me, because I never liked the teleport kick. I'm one of those absurd traditionalists who, while I don't mind a little bit of variation and changes in trademark gameplay moves, Scorpion having a, a teleport kick and not a teleport punch really bugged me. Yeah, it was weird. Um, I think what bothers me about it is that the way each person who has a teleport does their teleport in the 2D games, when they first got those moves, was specifically unique. Scorpion did a punch. Melina did a kick. Raiden just appears and disappears. Kung Lao pops out of the ground and, like, is floating in the air and can do, like, air attacks. Everybody's is a little bit different. So when Scorpion's turned into a kick in Deception, it's just, he's stealing Melina's now. There was that... I was also really on the fence about him being able to summon Hellfire from beneath the enemy's feet at first. I've become used to it now. It's 
actually kind of an intelligent opposite to Sub-Zero's ground dice. I mean, for me, I just I liked it just because it didn't come from him, it came out of the ground because yeah. it's from hell. And I love that the flavor of that. I kind of worry though, man. He's uh he's getting a lot of powers. Spear, teleport kicks and punches, summoning fire out of the ground, breathing Everybody fire. is though. That's the nature of variation systems. Summoning demons out of the ground. <laughs> summoning giant fiery hands out of the ground. The, uh... Summoning giant fiery hands out of the ground that throw demons that do teleport kicks. Sorry. I mean, the the demon assist moves in X, I think, were the least played variation. I think a lot of that was just Noob Cybot's not in the game, so let's throw his shit at other characters. I don't feel like Scorpion should be summoning armies of demons at his command. No, that was a little weird. I mean, I thought... So, I thought because that variation came with, like, a weird item that hung from his belt, like this skull artifact thing. I thought there was going to be a story to that, the same way I thought Possessed Kenshi was going to have a story, and nope. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh my god, it's the Death Stone and Malibu is canon after all. Yeah, yes! right? <laughs> my work here is done. Okay. Atana Kunuichi asks, Are you guys ever considering reviewing Defenders of the Realm? Yes. <laughs> we will eventually get there. You know what? In a perverse way, I am actually looking forward to it. Because the reason I'm afraid of going back to watching Conquest is that I have good memories of watching it in my... Yeah, you, you remember Conquest being good and you don't want to ruin that nostalgia. By the reality of it. <laughs> I have gone back. I have seen Xena again. I have seen Hercules again. I could only look through my fingers. I'm afraid of just seeing this house of cards in my mind that was once a really good show topple. But Defenders of the Realm, I've never seen more than like one episode. So, so it's an entire new chapter of MK from the past. From the time when I was formatively getting into MK and really being all about it that I just never had an opportunity to see because no channel that I could get on my fuzzy rabbit or TV could pick it up. So I didn't avoid the cartoon or anything, I just never had access to it. So I would actually look forward to doing this. I do think we'll end up doing Conquest because we both have the DVD. Oh god. I think we still need to acquire Defenders of the Realm. Because I was looking, like, there are episodes on YouTube, but n the first episode is missing. It apparently did get a DVD printing in Russia. <laughs> Seriously, I looked this up. I might have to import it. Yeah, eBay. that's the thing with uh, Mortal Kombat TV. Other countries, weirdly, always got these decent DVD sets, and America never did. Bought two series of Conquests, because they came out in Europe. Then, like, half a year later... The DVD got announced for uh, for NTSC, North America. Wasted money. And I've still not watched it. <laughs> See, some of Conquest is actually good. The pilot is, in fact, the worst episode. So you just <laughs> gotta kind of rip off that band-aid and then it'll get better as you go. Oh, hold me. All right. Chameleon asks us, it's always bugged me that Scorpion and Sub-Zero have just been assumed to be rivals, though with NRS showing that they've settled their differences, and finally having a trailer that features Scorpion facing someone else. Do you think they will stop marketing that rivalry for a while? I don't think they'll ever stop marketing the rivalry. 
marketing is a strange beast. It kind of picks a thing and does that thing forever. McDonald's will rebrand, but they'll never get rid of the Big Mac. They can't, even if they wanted to. They know who their mascots are, as we said earlier. And Fire versus Ice is just such a classic image. It doesn't make sense to not use their two most recognizable characters facing off against each other. But at the same time, they trust their fan base to know the story. Yeah, I think I think the thing of it is that we'll always get, like, the cinematic trailer where two guys are fighting, and it doesn't even matter which two guys, because that's not canon. Like, in story mode, I wouldn't expect too much Scorpion versus Sub-Zero in the future. Although I think we'll get, like, at least one fight in Eleven, just because we're playing with time and... Like, a version of Scorpion who hasn't made peace with Sub-Zero yet will probably run into a version of Sub-Zero. More than likely. They do typically cross paths and fight once every game or something like that, but it's not a blood feud anymore. No, no. Yeah. Ryu and Ken spar all the time. So is it here. So the thing about the Scorpion and Sub-Zero rivalry is it's really Hanzo and B-Han who, who are the rivals. So I've always wanted to see it become Scorpion and Noob Saibot as rivals, and really Kwai Liang's rival as Sector. That would be nice, but I kind of feel like Cyrax and Sector in an ideal timeline have unfinished business. I, I can see that too. I think, um... I mean, really, Noob Saibot is a good rival for both Scorpion and Kwai Liang. So Rain Reptile asks us, What is it about Mortal Kombat that attracts so many creative types? John Tobias was good at his work. <laughs> you know, there's a lot to choose from. There's so many categories and there's just so much about it. And I'm not still here two decades on talking about this series because it had great gameplay. Yeah, no. There there was a very significant amount of time. In fact, I don't think I do like the gameplay for any MK <laughs> game except Shaolin Monks and the reboot games. <laughs> like... It's about the characters. It's about the unique artistic aesthetic of so many tropes and worlds and genres coming together and about the strength of the characters and the visual design. Yeah, Tobias didn't have a lot of space to work with, so he got really, really good at implying things and fitting a lot of, like, visual information into something. Like, you can tell things about characters by stuff like what they're wearing and what moves they do just as much as you can from reading their biographies. Exactly. And that's, you know, there's so many uh, strong elements, you know, costume design, graphic design, the stages even. Like, and that's not all just John. Like, there's Steve Barron and John Vogel. A lot of people have contributed to the art and writing side of Mortal Kombat. And it's all just, up to a certain point in time, it's all so strong and so compelling. I'd say that there are usually always strengths, all the way through. There's usually something there for almost everyone in any given iteration of the game. You know, I found out recently on our Discord that Sindel is apparently considered a gay icon in the MK community. Did you oh, read yeah, that? I, I used to hear that all the time back in uh, the MKO days when Nine was coming out. That is actually news to me. I've always theorized it's because she kind of looks like a drag queen. <laughs> <laughs> 
See, you say that when you look at her, and I look at her, and I see, like, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, slash Morticia Adams. Maybe a little bit of Tim Curry thrown in there. It's because her wig is so tall, and because she wears so much eyeshadow. I just see a goth queen. But I suppose I could also see drag queens dressing like Sindel, too. It's, a, it's a good like outfit. The camp drag movement borrows a lot from the Elvira aesthetic but more colorful because there's so much silver and purple in Sindel's design well those are kind of goth too I suppose kind of classic goth colors I would know but there is someone for everyone Natara has this huge fan base I know that there are people who latch on to me as a joke character like I do and I mean our discord has I'm pretty sure it's like an ironic hipster thing, but they love Sue Howe. <laughs> this started on, like, Reddit. And what always happens there is that eventually that ironic joke love becomes genuine appreciation and love. So you give it, like, six more years, Sue Howe is going to be a hot demand DLC character. What yeah. hath God wrought? But Ed will still think they're telling a joke, and he's not coming back in a game. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might be, uh an IRL generation of new developers away before Sue however comes back. I wouldn't say no. There are people who deserve chances less than he does. When when the youth gets their turn at running the show. It's a little bit like politics. You know, the hippies are always like, when are the boomers going to die out so we get to run the country? <laughs> people are going to get really, really hungry for Jackie to become a main character in 30 years' time. <laughs> But yes, to underline the point, there's just something for absolutely everyone. And also, artists are typically very frustrated types because everyone wants them to work for free and nothing makes them feel better than murdering someone. And that's why they gravitate to MK. Nyak, nyak. Okay. Novocaine Kills Eleven asks us, What are the team's thoughts on the Serena and Bihan relationship in the new timeline? I never really put too much into it before in the old timeline because they only had the one non-confrontational moment which was ended abruptly by Palpatine. <laughs> there was nothing really there and it kind of moved towards her and Kwai Liang. Tournament Edition game. Yeah, Deadly Alliance Tournament Edition and then that carried over into Armageddon. Yes. What has me interested in their past for the new timeline, question continues, is the conversation with Serena and Katana in MKX. Katana describes her as getting too familiar Plus, Serena actually knows and comfortably uses his real name. Some more seems to have happened in this timeline over the two encounters of the old. I would be very interested to see what mythologies looked like in the new timeline. But the, the weird thing about that conversation to me is how does Katana know? She's never actually met Bihan at any point in time. I'm assuming that Katana, who is Hero Revenant, is referring to some sort of interaction which may or may not have happened with Serena post Kuai Liang's resurrection. Well, no, because it's, cause it's you got too familiar with Bi Han. Is that what she says? Yes. Let me go back and look at that script. So it has to be like, okay, if we assume that Noob has been dead or missing since MK9, the only time Serena and him could have gotten familiar was when he was still Sub-Zero in this timeline's equivalent of mythologies. The only way Katana would know about that is if it's a story she was told by someone. I'd love to know what that story was. Well, I'm going to guess that maybe Kia and Jataka kind of heard about this and started mistrusting her and 
it's the butterfly effect. Someone says something, and then that gets expanded, and word of mouth travels, and Al Simmons is, I, I loved my wife, so they killed me, becomes, he killed his wife and loved it. <laughs> so I don't know if more actually happened, because Nine does specify that the events that happen in mythologies are more or less the same in the new one. We know that he did still do something that thwarted Quan Chi and Shinnok before he came to the tournament. Raiden says that much when he dies in Nine. I mean, I prefer to just think that mythology is still canon because it doesn't have to be eliminated. It's fine where it is. I mean, the fact that Quan Chi is wearing the amulet during MK9 and nobody seems to care is obviously an art mistake and, like, Vogel himself has admitted as much. But at the same time, they've never addressed one way or the other, like, they've never tried to hand wave it or um, explain it. So they could go back and retell mythologies in such a way that they'd try to make that make sense. Perhaps. Which leaves a window open to tell mythologies differently. I think it's simply that, um, I mean, the scene between Bihan and Serena in mythologies, most of the cutscenes in mythologies, really, are so short that they're more like implications of a story than an actual story. And therefore, there is room for expanding. But that's a very long way around to rectify an art mistake. Like the question itself says, in the actual mythologies, Bihan and Serena talk for five seconds before Shinnok shoots her in the back. And the conversation is nothing but, I'm on your side because you can help me escape the nether realm. But there's romantic music playing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this is also Royal Netherrealm Bitch Queen Katana. So maybe even five minutes of dialogue is too familiar. Probably, especially if it led to Serena turning on the Brotherhood of Shadow. Your job is murder this guy. And remember, according to mythologies, like, it's not that she was just interested in helping him. She appears behind Quan Chi and, like, knocks him off the fucking platform. Yeah. So... That's that's kind of a crime right there. She does attack her master, and the whole thing is based on... So Serena's entire reason for, like, wanting to go with Bihan is because nobody in the Nether Realm ever, like, says no to Quan Chi. This is the first guy she's ever seen in her entire life who will, is willing to rebel against the boss. And that appeals to her. She just likes big, strong guys, is what you're saying. <laughs> He just likes not having sex with Quan Chi. Look at him. I'd really rather not picture that. It's I know it's disgusting. It's 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 implied based on what they're wearing and the way he treats them, but it's just oh, it's it's explicit. Um, such an unpleasant. The girls picture. in Conquest are not Kia Jataka and Serena. They are wearing their outfits for some reason. I'm pretty sure Conquest literally got the clothes from the set of mythologies. Ah, good. More reasons to be afraid of revisiting that show. But, but it's explicit that they're sex slaves in the show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question. Survived combatants. I know this is not canon, but which timeline Sub-Zero would be in Injustice 2? Past or present? The Sub-Zero in Injustice 2, based on his intro dialogues, is definitely taken from the end of MKX. Like, his bio... An ending, I'm pretty sure, even say that the way he ended up in the Injustice universe was that after he chased Kotokan out of uh, Earthrealm so that Cassie's team could go after Shinnok, 
he like followed them through the portal and the, something went wrong with the portal and he ended up in the wrong dimension. Well, there you have it. Next question. Charybdis. Given that the multiverse is now confirmed, would we agree that all different branches of MK are now technically canon? Fitz movies, Shaolin monks, Conquest, Legacy, etc. I mean, the idea that all the media out there are just different branches in a multiverse, that's not a new thing. I don't think we'll ever see any kind of crossover. I don't think NRS even owns the rights to some versions of Mortal Kombat. Like, I don't know if they can use anything from the Threshold universe. But it's a fun thing to think about. There's nothing stopping you from thinking that these things can be canon or they can't be canon. Outside of the game's plots, what really matters is how much you love them and how much you want them to matter. Yeah. You're never going to see any kind of crossover into the main series, apart from maybe, like, a reference or some combo string renamed Chinese Ninja Warrior, like they did <laughs> this time because they're living gods like that. But I can't let go of a universe where Smoke's catchphrase is actually toasty. It's so fucking <laughs> stupid, but I love it. So that's canon to me, but it doesn't matter. Oh, uh, no. five minutes away from having talked shit about the Death Stone. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. Malibu's the best universe. Admit it. Admit it. I don't know about the word best, but it's certainly a universe. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've, I've, I think, mentioned this before on the air. I say it a lot on the Discord. I don't know if I've said it on the air or not, but the thing about media and the concept of canon is that it's kind of imaginary. Like, it's very easy to say what is in continuity and what isn't if a franchise has only one version and only one writer the whole time. Like, if you read Terry Pratchett's novels, there's only one canon, and it's the one Terry Pratchett says there is because he's the only guy writing his novels. But if you talk about Superman... And you ask somebody, what's the canon version of his origin story where Krypton explodes and he's raised by the Kents? Everybody on Earth has a different answer. And in fact, none of them are right because most answers are going to be like amalgamations taken from all the different Superman things they've ever seen. Um, same thing with Batman. And it's like everybody remembers the gun and the pearls. But... It's like, after that, what happened? And some people are like, well, he trained with Ra's al Ghul, and that's not even how it went in the comics. That's from Nolan's version. Everybody has a headcanon, and that's the best you're going to get the more a franchise reboots or the more it's reinterpreted, the more writers it's had. Everything changes until it all becomes the eye of the beholder. Correct. So canon is whatever you want it to be at a certain point. <laughs> We make a big deal out of the game's canon here because we have kind of two very clearly defined timelines where for years we've gone in knowing that none of this other stuff in movies or comics or TV shows actually matters. Yeah. I think you're going to see you're going to see the effect a head canon can have on how you view uh, the official material when we get to the Katana episode because Shad and I have some different uh, ideas we grew up with about how her backstory goes. Extremely different. So, yeah, I mean, it's canon if you want it to be. <laughs> it's basically my opinion on the thing. 
It also helps if there's 25 different sources dating back to God knows when, and no one's actually sure what comes from where. Yeah. Like Sonya's fiancé. So next. Car to the low. In Armageddon's Conquest mode, Taven fights Serena, Kia, and Jataka, which I found weird, since Kia and Jataka are not playable, and I've always wondered why, since Armageddon was supposed to have everyone in the game in second why in Conquest mode were they working for Quan Chi? Because it doesn't make sense, considering Serena is supposed to be a good guy. Well, that's kind of two questions in one. Yeah, the first half of that, uh, Armageddon was only characters who have been playable before yeah. were playable again. And since Serena was playable in the Game Boy version of Deadly Alliance, and they had assets sitting around for her, they put her in Armageddon, and not Kia and Jataka. Smokeman was talking to me about this uh, recently because there was apparently some speculation that she was initially slated to be an MK4. Oh, yeah. I remember there being rumors that she was pushed for MK4, but kind of like vetoed at the last moment. Yeah, I've seen the developers ha uh, talking about, I don't remember where exactly, it might have been the trading card stuff, the, the little animated bios that came with Deception and Armageddon. They said, basically, that when they got to MK4, they were thinking of adding, like, a single person from Mythic, and Serena was in the running, but it came down to Fujin. I'm actually kind of grateful for that. And then the reason she's in Tournament Edition was because they were actually developing her for the main game and didn't get her finished in time. So she was gonna be in Deadly Alliance. Do you have a source on that? I don't remember where I saw it exactly. Tabmok might know. I look at her model in Armageddon, and it just seems so freshly minted compared to everyone else's. Her her alternate costume with the more pink, that um that was her uh, tournament edition model. Mm. There's a full res version of that, like one that's the graphical quality of Deadly Alliance. I've seen that. Yeah, which is I guess I think that's the only actual evidence we have that they were developing her for Deadly Alliance, and they just had to like. They didn't get her finished in time, so they just down-resed it for Game Boy quality. Uh, the MK4 bit's the only bit that I remember. Back to the point. Uh, there have been a lot of people pushing for Kia and Jataka to actually also show up in a fighting game, and there have been ever since, like, before Deadly Alliance ever came out. Yeah, I think it's it's very much like Tremor, except less because Tremor's a palette swap ninja. And they have always worked for Quan Chi. And unlike Serena, they never turned on him. Yeah, they don't really have personalities of their own. Serena's the one that stands out. As for why Serena is fighting on their side in Conquest mode, uh, Serena is one of the characters who got a bio on the website after the game came out. And what it explains is that after she met Kwai Liang in Deadly Alliance, and he basically gave her this compass that would lead her back to the Lin Kuei Temple so she could live there from then on because he was granting her asylum and stuff. She decided that instead of going back to Earthrealm and going to the temple, that she was, like, afraid for Kwai Liang's safety while he was in Outworld, so she decided to follow him in secret and, like, protect him. And so she's, like, doing that behind the scenes in Deception, and then it gets to uh, the end of Deception, and after Onaga's beaten, uh, Sub-Zero sees Noob Saibot and Smoke at Onaga's fortress and follows them back to the Netherrealm. And Serena follows him to protect him. And when they get to the Netherrealm, uh, Noob Saibot and Smoke jump Sub-Zero and they're going to rip him in half like in Noob's ending. But Serena jumps out to save him. And 
as she's fighting Noob and Smoke, she sort of loses control of her human form and hulks out into a demon. And and Sub-Zero was knocked out at the time, and so she, she beats up Noob and Smoke and chases them away. And then when Sub-Zero comes to, he sees this demon he doesn't recognize, and he's going to fight. And Serena doesn't want to fight him, so she runs off. And she runs straight into Quan Chi. And Quan and Noob make her give up the uh, compass that'll lead to the Lin Kuei HQ. And that's how Noob is able to attack the Lin Kuei during Taven's conquest mode. And it's also like, now that Serena's captured Quan, she forces her to work for him again. And so that's why she's fighting with Kia and Jataka. But after Taven beats them up, Serena gets free again, and she's a good guy in her Armageddon ending. Not that the arcade endings are worth reading, but yeah. <laughs> I want to believe that all of that was intended the way that you just described it. But as it is, just it's just so many missing pieces. All of those endings on the website, or those bios, I mean, on the website, Vogel wrote them after the game came out. So pretty much all of them serve to explain things in Conquest mode that don't make sense. They're all after-the-fact justification. Good as canon to me, I just wish that Armageddon had done a better job of being able to explain it. As far as, like, the quality goes, I actually really like that bio for Serena. It makes sense to me. To the Kia and Jataka point, as an aside, I have always wanted to have them show up again and be like Noob Smoke. Because they're never going to get a story of their own, really. No. They're just servants. And th their primary purpose is to highlight the difference between Serena and all the other demons running around there working for Quan. Yeah. Also, I think I think the problem with bringing Ki and Jataka back, and honestly the problem that Serena keeps having with trying to get brought back too, is that none of the three of them had good special moves. They all just have, like, a, a sword or some kind of weapon. Um... I think Kia threw a glaive, Jataka had a katana, and Serena had two sickles. Yes, that was it. And all their moves revolved around those. Well, and again, she started tossing out broken knives at the speed of light, too. Yeah. Don't forget those. Yeah, but, I mean, Kano throws knives, so I've never really liked Serena having knives. When Whenever we, we're asked, like, what special moves do I think Serena should have, I always say I think that... Her move should be based on her story abilities, which is shape-shifting back and forth between human and demon form. And the only move I would keep from Armageddon is the five-star kick, and I always say that they should add a graphic to it that she's drawing a pentagram with her foot. That'd be pretty nice, actually. Yeah. As an aside, what do you think she looks like in her demon form? Because I used to like associate demon directly with Oni, so I'm like, is she like a mini Moloch or something? We've received a lot of different demon forms We've since We've seen a couple then. different demon designs. Like, the ones in X are kind of like liquors from Resident Evil a little bit. <laughs> You're talking about the ones with, like, the uh, the gold faces that show up on, on the cards and shit? Yeah, like the ones that are in, in the Johnny Cage chapter that are attacking the soldiers in the street and that Raiden and Fujin are fighting. They all have these, like, weird shell faces, and they're kind of made of meat and yep. bone spurs. Some of them have wings, some of them don't. All right, Adam, back bacon variation this week. <laughs> How close are we to getting the episode for Deception's Conquest mode? Okay, I have the emulator set up. Now, all I need to be able to do is record without lag, and you're going to get it. Now, all I need to do is have the time to record without lag, and you're going to get it. Now, all I have to do is find the time to record without lag before MK11 comes out and dominates the rest of this year. 
And you're There's gonna get no it. way we're gonna do that before eleven comes out, man. I I want to, I really do, but I can't promise it's gonna happen anytime soon. I will try my level best. You know what? I'm I need to get a new computer. This thing is over five years old at this point. It's getting really laggy. Like it doesn't even want to run Firefox at a decent speed anymore. Oh shit! And I'm sitting on enough cash that I could buy a new hard drive. Um. And once I do, I'm planning on getting something decent enough that I can emulate, like... Because I, I have run Armageddon, and it worked out fine, but I tried to emulate Shaolin Monks, and it had this really weird lag. So, with the new computer, hopefully I'll be able to uh, capture some decent game footage. And then we'll see what we can do with that. But we probably won't have the time to do any such projects until, like the summer at the very soonest i'll try but i won't make any promises my pc is decent i think that just some capture inevitably results in lag when you're recording off of like an emulator maybe I'm just using the wrong types of uh capture cards well capture tech but cross your fingers next chromatose if mk ever rebooted from the ground up aka only keeping sub-zero and scorpion as ideal characters within let's say 10 years what would you see as the general overall tone for it? Right now I am seeing Saw with mumble rap and I'm horrified beyond rational thought. I think with the concept of a reboot, the risk is always there of like, what's the cultural zeitgeist at the time? Is it going to be some gritty, urban, grounded thing? Or is it going to feel like Mortal Kombat? Assuming it happened today, I think it would actually be a lot more lighthearted than we're used to seeing in recent times. Because we're kind of moving away from that whole gritty, swear to me, Nolan aesthetic that the Batman yeah. films brought. We're getting Aquaman and, like, lighthearted superhero fare. And it's really refreshing to see. I would hope. I also think, so, like, when they rebooted the last time, MK9, um, it was the same creators who did it the first time. And so they were basically playing their greatest hits. We got Toasty back, we got Babalities back, all that silly shit. In the hands of a different creative team, which I think is what it's going to have to be for the next time they reboot. Like, I don't know if Ed will go back to the beginning and do the tournament again. And also, I don't think he's ever actually going to make his Nobody Comes Back But Scorpion and Sub-Zero game. I think that was always... A foolish dream, and the closest thing to him achieving it was MKX. In the dark corners of game fandom, the name Street Fighter 3 is whispered with fear and respect. <laughs> no one will ever again attempt to do what it did, but they can dream. Indeed. But yeah, I, I am extremely wary, cautious of the thought of another reboot i think that story-wise we do need to like start over but i also don't trust the hands that would do it <laughs> <laughs> i believe it's inevitable and i do believe that we're due for something more adventurous maxi if there is an infinite multiverse would you like to see a cold war themed one which theme or what if scenario would you like to see explored now Cold War, not so much, because let's be honest, what this is, is a takeoff of Red Sun Superman. Yeah. And Red Sun Superman specifically works because it's an inversion of the all-American country boy dream superhero. 
Yeah, it actually, like, applies to the concept of Superman to see what he would have turned out like if his ship landed in a different country. The different country thing doesn't really work for everything, and it's not my favorite concept for an else world. I think that the first thing that comes to mind that I would like to see is an alternate universe where Shang side won MK1. I think that would be an interesting what if. And you can, like, twist in different ways. Maybe the reason Shang wins MK1 is because the Shaolin chose Kung Lao instead of Liu Kang and he couldn't hash it. Something like that. And you can do, like, Scorpion doesn't kill Bihan in that universe. Stuff like that. <laughs> I'll, I'll gladly pay it. Show me the money. I want this. I will pay money for a game where Kung Lao fucks up. <laughs> you can take that whining, but I'm supposed to be here. You don't know what I can do. You don't know. And him fucking up. And I would love I would, it. I would really like to see, like, a world where Outworld's invasion is legal and all the heroes are basically this uh, rebellion fighting underground because that's the best they can do. I think it would be an interesting twist on things. I might actually like to see a universe where Idenia successfully repelled Outworld's invasions and actually kind of became an encroaching force themselves. I think that, like, that's the closest we might be able to get to that Red Sun Superman opposite scenario, where Katana actually does act similar to the way that she's kind of acting as Netherrealm Katana, but it's because that's how she's actually been raised. Like a crime syndicate situation where Edenia yeah. are bad guys and Outworld are good guys, like all the alignments are reversed. Rain, the noble heroic warrior. <laughs> Reptile, the sex god. I am I am a huge fan of, like, the mirror universe, like Spock with a goatee and the crime syndicate. That, that would really that work well for me. Opposite alignments concept. You have, like, Melina, who has been bred and born and raised to be something for Katana to pick on and look down <laughs> upon because she sees the worst aspects of herself, but she escapes and gets over it and begins leading an invasion of heroic Tarkatans. Basically. Kenshi 786. Is there a way that they could make Liu Kang the hero again? In a more anti-hero approach, perhaps? Well... Uh, I'm not a fan of the word anti-hero in conjunction with Liu Kang at all. <laughs> I mean, the, the fact of the MK universe is that everybody already is an anti-hero except Liu Kang. And even then, he kind of goes a little dark starting with MK2 on, because he's willing to kill the people that stormed his temple and murdered his brothers. He's willing to kill... Struggles with it and thinks about it. I don't... We've talked about this before. I don't think he ever actually went through with it, but it was definitely on his mind. It was definitely his, like, tragic arc where, like, when Aunt May died, Peter attacked Kingpin in prison and threatened to, like, choke him to death on webbing. <laughs> that was rewarding. Yeah. I love that scene. To isolate the first part of that question, there is a way that they can make Liu Kang the hero again, and I think that that's part of what MK11 is going to be about. I really hope so. He's not going to be, I don't think he's going to be the hero again, but he's definitely going to have a starring presence. I just don't know about him being an anti-hero. I would be extraordinarily happy if the last chapter is Liu Kang. Versus Raiden. <laughs> Indeed. Like, for him to finally be the guy who beats the boss again, I said it before, it's been over 15 years since Deadly Alliance. It's been enough time. 
let's bring Lou back into the spotlight, guys. Come on. <laughs> I can't disagree. I was tired of him once, but now seeing Lou land a flying kick to Dark Raidens or Kronika's or Shao Kahn's face would just make me feel really happy. Snake Eyes. People make dumb decisions all the time. It's part of human nature, and I expect that in the heat of a moment, a character in fiction should be prone to doing the same. In your opinion, what's the right way to go about writing something like that? Uh, I have a fairly simple answer for that. The right way to write someone making a mistake where, like, you don't turn them into an unlikable character or screw them up um, is if they pay for the mistake. And that's sort of the problem with Shujinko is that, you know, he spends like 50 years being tricked into helping the bad guy. And then at the end, when he finds out, he becomes, you know, he turns around and attacks the bad guy. And he is the one who defeats Onaga, sort of. Nightwolf kind of helps too. But he still never, like, pays any price for his mistakes. And that, I think, bugs people. And, like, Raiden and MK9, that whole game is him making mistakes and other people paying the price. And that's why it's so frustrating is that Raiden himself never pays, but everyone around him pays this horrible price that they didn't deserve. And so it makes him look like a giant asshole. So really, the answer is just karma. When you're writing, include a sense of karma. If you screw up, there should be some kind of punishment for it, and then you pick yourself back up and you fix the problem. I think the proof's in the pudding here. We're talking about MK9 Raiden right away. When I looked at this question earlier, I knew that we were going to go right there. Part of the reason that we hate MK9 Raiden and the way he acts so much is not only because he fucks up, but his fuck-ups are extremely out of character. You've got yeah. to make the mistake believable. You have to be able to look at the character and say, this is what they would do. It's not maybe the best decision they would have made, but it's still a decision that they would have made. Yeah, the thing about Raiden, millions of years old, he's supposed to be very experienced and wise. So he's also supposed to be... The reason that Raiden was chosen to be the protector of Earthrealm instead of Fujin or the god of Earth or water or fire is because of the five gods of Earthrealm, Raiden cares about humans the most. He's the most compassionate and the most human in personality. So he's not incapable of making a mistake because that is something a human would do, but it's the kinds of mistakes he made. For example, if the thing you are known for is caring about the people, then you should not be offering your allies' souls to the nether realm to sell your friends to the devil. <laughs> Literally. When I look at Raiden, I see wisdom, compassion, perseverance, and a refusal to kowtow or acquiesce to any kind of evil. And he displays the opposite of these character traits all throughout MK fucking 9. Raiden in MK9 is also, like, constantly afraid to speak up or interfere when Shang or Shao Kahn are breaking the rules of the tournament. And that's his job. He's supposed to be a very commanding and intimidating presence. Yeah, he's supposed to be like, no, fuck you, Shao Kahn. You're not gonna pull this over me. 
for anyone new to this show who hasn't like listened to the past episodes of the, of the Nethercast or heard our opinions on this before, I consider the nadir of the MK series to be not the horrible written mess that is Shaolin Monks, because it's a fun game to play, not the horribly programmed and designed game that is Special Forces, because, hey, it's at least kind of fun to play as Jax and there were some interesting black dragons running around. No. The nadir of MK to me is seeing Raiden in the Nether Realm shriveled up begging Quan Chi for help in a submissive position. Fuck that. That's wrong. Yeah. You look at MKX, and that entire scene where Scorpion is trying to do the right thing by killing Quan Chi right the fuck away, the people who are making mistakes in that scene are Sonia and Kenshi. But you see things from Scorpion's perspective. He knows it's the right thing to do. He knows it's the only thing to do. But we don't come out of that scene being disgusted or displeased with Sonia or Kenshi the way we are with Raiden because they're doing what they thought was the right thing. You have to make it believable. Yeah. And, like, another example that I always come back to in 9 is the way Liu Kang dies is Raiden accidentally uses too much lightning. Now, if you're the god of a thing, and you have been for a million years, how can you possibly not know what the right amount of lightning to use on a person is? Like, how can you ever do something with lightning by accident? He specifically says it was an accident, both in 9 and in X. How? How do you make an accident with lightning, man who is the god of lightning? (laughs) I guess when you punch someone in the shoulder in a friendly gesture, it actually turns out to hurt them and you didn't know your own strength. But for a god figure, that doesn't make any kind of sense at all. Yeah, if you've been alive for a million years, you should have enough practice to know your own strength. (laughs) $500 $500 Sunglasses asks us, What do you think would happen to the Revenant souls if they are killed? Would they ascend to the heavens or stay doomed in the nether realm? So, the way the Revenants work is their souls have been tainted by evil, and they've also been put in new bodies. So, if you killed a Revenant, I'm pretty sure they'd lose the body, but their soul would still just end up in the prison part of the nether realm, trapped. Because they still have that taint. Quan Chi did do a number on them, and he has possession of them. Yeah, like, what Raiden did to restore Scorpion, Sub-Zero, and Jax was remove the taint. Like, they still have the bodies that they had as revenants, which is why, like, when when you watch it happening, all you see is, like, that complexion with the yellow veins and everything sort of peels away. But, like, Jax is still wearing the twisted spiky arms. Like, those bodies were already alive. Raiden just needed to remove the evil from their souls. I would like to believe that with Quan Chi dead, there's the possibility that whatever hold he has over them would dissipate once they were shed of their forms, and that they could ascend. I don't know. I think I think the fact that they're, like, he's dead, but Lu and Kitana are still evil and they've decided to take the throne, I feel like that says that the only thing that can remove that evil in their souls is, like, an outside force of magic, or, like, if they really, really wanted to and meditated on it, like Kung Lao does in his arcade ending. Sadly, we already know that that's not what happens with Kung Lao, because we've seen good yeah. Kung fighting bad Kung. Right, but I'm just saying, like, if you make the choice to purge yourself of evil, we know that's something a person can do. 
Because, like, when Sindel was tainted with evil in MK3, all she had to do to snap out of it was Kitana had to talk her out of it. Like, a regular person who is not magically tainted still has, you know, evil in them. Like, they still have sin and the capacity for good, and they can make the choice. And I feel like the Revenants are the same way. They could choose if they wanted to, to, like, try and be good people. They're just not really interested because they're too evil right now. So as it stands, they'd probably linger in the Nether Realm, much as I'd like it to be the opposite. Yeah, I think I think they would just respawn as souls without bodies, and they'd be trapped in the prison. You wonder why we hate this bald prick? <laughs> B Radbrand double eight double nine again. What would happen if the tournament of two realms, Mortal Kombat's tournament results, were fifty fifty? So. Victories only count if the aggressor side is the one who wins them. So, like, if if Earthrealm wins ten times in a row, nothing happens. The tournament just keeps going. If if Outworld wins five and then loses one, the count starts over again. Picture it as a tug of war. Yeah. The outcome only matters if Outworld gets ten in a row. Anytime their streak is broken, they have to start back over at one. The Elder Gods do not want the realms emerged. That's why, in order for this to actually happen, you have to prove for ten consecutive tournaments set fifty years apart that your forces, that your world has bred the absolute strongest warriors and is worthy of overcoming that other realm. The defending side doesn't want to merge the realms, so if they win several in a row, nothing happens. All it does is keep them safe. So the whole thing's really not engineered so that ties are possible. Yeah. $500 Sunglasses asks us, What do you think would have happened if Sector got the Dragon Medallion instead of Sub-Zero? He did. And if, as far as we know, nothing. Like, I don't know if it can boost the powers of a robot. It definitely did something for Sector's dad. Um, what I think it worked, how it works is just that it clearly draws upon or affects the soul somehow. Because um, we saw that in, in Sector's MK9 ending, when he takes over the Lin Kuei and kills his dad to get the Dragon Medallion, the Dragon Medallion actually uh, steals his dad's dying soul. And I think that's where the Dragon Medallion's power comes from. It steals souls and then gives that power to you. Because I also think that's why when Sub-Zero put it on in Deadly Alliance he prematurely aged and got gray hair. I think it sucked a little bit of soul out of him. That's always implied. It saps the user's life force at the cause of amplifying their strength. And since the cyber ninjas either don't quote-unquote have souls, or at least their souls are dormant inside them, and their powers don't come from their souls, like we know canonically when, um, when Smoke was turned into a cyborg, he lost his powers, and they had to simulate them by releasing clouds of nanobots to uh, simulate his old smoke moves. You lose your powers when you become a cyborg because you've lost your soul. So if the Dragon Medallion works by uh, feeding power into your soul or taking from your soul to make you stronger, and you don't have a soul, like Sector doesn't, it's not going to do anything for you. It's just a leadership symbol. You're like, I'm holding this, this makes me the guy in charge. That's all. I do think that when you become a cyborg, whatever powers you have are partially mimicked 
and it partially draws on what you have available to use. There's no real logic otherwise, because CyberSub is still throwing out ice balls. I think they just equipped him with some, rev- like, Captain Cold Gun technology. See, at that point, though, why not just give everyone missiles and nets and smoke bombs? I mean, Smoke's fatality proves that he has access to Cyrax's bombs. I suppose. I think it's really just they all could do the same moves, they just choose not to, or, like, when they were building them, they were like, well, this is what he used to do, so we'll give him tech that does the same thing, because, like, muscle memory. You know, we want him to be able to fight the way he used to fight, but better, because armor and computer targeting and feasible weapons. I'd like to think there is something a bit mystical to it, though, but that's just me. Yeah, but, like, Sector was not exceptionally more powerful or a better fighter in the comic when Sub-Zero killed him to take control of the Lin Kuei back. So I don't think the Dragon Medallion was giving him any juice. I've theorized before that the more willing you are to go through with the Cyber Initiative, the less of yourself you're willing to keep, the weaker your soul is as a result. My personal opinion is, if the Dragon Medallion saps your soul, what happens to Sector if he's actually using that thing and his soul is already in a severely diminished state because out of all of them, he's the one who wants this the most. He's the one who's described in MK3 as literally having no soul to take. He'll burn brightly for a very brief time and fuck himself up. Nothing good for Sector or anyone else around him when he has access to the medallion. I just, I don't know what power it could give him because magic and technology don't usually go together very well. And he doesn't inherently have anything to work with the way that Sub-Zero or Smoke do that we know of. Apparently, when he was still human Cyrax, his his superpower was teleporting. But now when he teleports, it's all like Matrix code. Like he's being beamed up Star Trek style by machinery. Being turned into like satellite beamed somewhere else. You'd think that he'd maybe throw focused wrist explosives or like, Exploding shuriken or something, but no, motherfucker actually has a small rocket pack strapped to his wrist. <laughs> well, well, Sector's bio in Nine specifically said that the reason he loves being Lin Kuei is that it lets him indulge his like psychopathic need to murder the shit out of people. So like, Sector is a crazy person and doesn't give a shit about stealth. He just wants like shock and awe. Like he loves the flamethrower shit. That picture you see in his MK3 ending of him standing in fire, that is everything Sector dreams of every night. <laughs> he is he is a crazy person who just really wants to murder people in spectacular ways. <laughs> Being a robot is just an excuse to be able to do that even better. Indeed. Kenshi 786. How can Scorpion's feud with Sub-Zero stay alive in future MKs, as this is often the main focus for casual players who like to return to the game? I think those guys can just pick Scorpion and Sub-Zero on the select screen and do whatever they want, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, look. I think that this happens one of two ways. A. Against all odds, they continue the current timeline, and we get another time skip, we get either... Frost versus Takeda, and all the progress that the Shirai Ryu and Lin Kuei have made in setting their differences aside, ruined because Frost fucks up most likely. 
and this becomes a reignited blood feud that gets worse further down the line. This would not be my optimal outcome because I don't, I just don't want to see everything that has come as a result of these two characters advancing so far be undone like that. It would feel very bad. We're at this point where it's like we've hit the apex of storytelling for both sides and we've put the silly blood feud shit behind us. That is a way to get it to happen again, but I'd rather we not go down that path. The answer is B, reboot, which I think is eventually inevitable. Yeah, I mean, no matter what happens, you're always going to start back over at the first tournament whenever you either reboot the games or move to a movie or a TV show or a cartoon. You always start at the first tournament because you have to, because you have to introduce potential new audiences to the concept. Um, X-Men writer Chris Claremont had this saying that every comic book is somebody's first issue. So you always have to like make sure you're introducing things to people who maybe don't know what's going on. And that's why you always start at the beginning. And the beginning always includes Scorpion and Sub-Zero fighting each other. So we're good. <laughs> We've got it. <laughs> For as many times as you've heard, with great power comes great responsibility... The 386th time you've heard Peter Parker say that is someone else's first. Just try to deal with it. That's why movies are always origin stories. The most most of the people who went to say to see Ant-Man had no idea who the hell Ant-Man was. They needed to see how he got his fucking shrink suit and everything. Havoc for MK11. Don't know if this was asked yet, but would you like to see the guys who did the Castlevania Netflix series do an MK series? Good Salty Christ eating wall turkey, yes. I'm a huge Castlevania fan. I have been for many, many years. It's in my top five franchises of all time. And these guys have managed to imbue Trevor and Sypha with wonderful personalities. They've managed to capture the heart of what makes Dracula so captivating in the first place, which is a thing that not many of the games have actually really been able to latch onto. And that's the fact that at his core, he's just a little boy lost who's angry at the world for taking the thing he loves away from him, his wife. So these guys have a really good understanding of character and emotion and gravitas. And they're excellent at what they do. And they've managed to give me the best Castlevania product that I've had in years and years. And I even loved Lords of Shadow, the first one. So assuming that they were capable of taking all the material and all the heavy lore, which is something of a disadvantage compared to Castlevania, because Castlevania does not have a lot packed into so dense a period of time over so many games, as MK does. I'd love to see them try. I think that they could do it. I don't think it's possible for any specific team to translate every bio and every interaction down to a fault, but I feel like they could do a very good job of getting close. Yeah, I think... um. Eddie Shankar has a tendency to be a bit of an edgelord, but he's obviously a fan of the things he adapts, and he does care about them. So, did you see uh, Castlevania? Would you like to see this happen? Because I know I would. Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I really like that show. Um, and I think there's, there's so, sort of an interesting thing. Like, in Season 2, they sort of had to make up a bunch of generals for Dracula so they could show more of the vampire side of things. And you certainly don't have to invent anyone to do that with Shao Kahn's army. So I think that a, a universe with more characters to work with would actually be an even more interesting thing to see how they do it. 
because we could probably get like a whole bunch of cameos from guys who normally aren't in stuff like Reiko. <laughs> God, I'd love to see this happen. Yeah. Okay, so next question. Blight Phoenix 726 asks were Sector and Cyrax actually named that, or is that a code name like Sub-Zero? Well, from my understanding, Razor, in Botswana, Cyrax is like the John Smith of names. <laughs> I mean, I believe Sector is a code name because, like I said already, his superpower as a human was teleporting, and a Sector is a location on a map. And all they did was spell it with a K instead of a C, because Mortal Kombat does that. <laughs> so it totally makes sense as a code name for him. Now, Cyrax, unless unless you want to go with the explanation that it's a Botswana word. <laughs> Which it is not, to be clear. <laughs> no. Um... If someone from Botswana is listening and can tell us otherwise, please step up to the podium. Uh, yeah, no, it's definitely fucking gibberish, the word Cyrax. Um, the only explanation that I've ever, like, been able to gin up in my headcanon is that Cyrax's codename must have originally been something different, like maybe Anthrax, because he fights with, like, potion bottles and alchemy and chemical weaponry when he's a human. And maybe... Cyrax is, in fact, a portmanteau of Cyborg and Anthrax. <laughs> it's something that sounds cool. It's either Anthrax or, like, Terax, something like that. But the first two letters definitely do come from Cyborg. Yeah, it's it's definitely like, when, when Smoke became a Cyborg, everybody called him Cyber Smoke. And you can't really make a portmanteau of cyber and smoke. Those two words don't fit together. But you can definitely shorten cyber anthrax into Cyrax. <laughs> That's probably all the explanation you're ever going to get for that. They probably do very much have their own real names, and maybe we'll actually get to learn them one day. It would be nice. They are, I think, the only two guys left who don't have real names revealed. And for anyone who's joined the MK universe uh, with nine or forward, you guys don't know how much of a revelation it was finding out the real names of both Sub-Zero brothers. That's the kind of thing that happens once a decade. We went like 15 years just calling them older Sub-Zero and younger Sub-Zero or... Sub-The Elder or Sub-The Sub Younger. Sub-Zero the fifth and Sub-Zero the sixth because in mythologies, their dad was a Sub-Zero too, and he was called the Fourth. It was rough trying to tell them <laughs> apart <laughs> before they had names. Oftentimes, we just call the older one MK1 Sub for purposes of, like, easy explanation, or older Sub. Yeah. Or maybe, like, Scarred Sub and Classic Sub, or... <laughs> Again, this is also before all the Noob Saibot stuff happened, largely, so... Yeah, there was, there was a lot of hoops you had to jump through to tell the brothers apart when you were talking about them. <laughs> so, the fact that MK9 gave us the names Bihan and Kwai Liang helped a lot. <laughs> Thank you, NRS. You know, I keep saying, for as much as MK9 messed up with, like, Raiden and stuff, it did give us so much. 
forever grateful for it. There is material in, like, the bios and endings. Like, story mode is the problem, yeah. but the bios and endings have some stuff, you know? The bios, the endings, the gameplay, the tag mode. I'm actually a big fan of the fact that we found out the reason Sonya joined the army was because her dad went AWOL and she always hoped that she'd find out what happened to him. It was wonderful. We already knew that the guy's name was Major Daniel Blade. Like, just that, that little added detail that, like, even in this, her life is driven by the tragedy of having lost somebody close. You know? I know that not everyone's a fan of Ermac having the soul of Gerard, but I always thought that it was a very natural and logical thing to do, and I was pleased. Yeah, I like that too. I was really pleased to see that finally shown explicitly, because I always felt it was a foregone conclusion. Before MK9 came out, there was this weird trend on the internet of people, like, suggesting what if Draman was Jared, and I got sick of hearing it. No. Because why would Jared go to hell and be tortured? I don't need Katana's dad to be edgelorded up, alright? Just let him be a good guy. Draman <laughs> was specified to be a bad person and a conqueror, and that's why he went to hell. Draman's bio also said he's only been dead for 500 years. Well, there's that too. It just doesn't fit. <laughs> okay. $500 Sunglasses asks our last two questions for the night. Number one. Mortal Kombat has characters with a large variety of different powers. Are there any powers that haven't been seen in the series that you would like to see introduced? Um, there's been some talk, uh, before Injustice 2 came out, a big, uh, popular suggestion was somebody with plant powers. And now we've had, a uh, Poison Ivy and Swamp Thing as sort of, like, a proof of concept. I could see it being done. I don't know if I have a particular, like, character idea in mind for where that would fit. Like, would that person be from Outworld, or an Edenian, or one of the ninjas, or, I don't know, I'm... I'd be cool with it, but it's not my favorite thing. One thing I've always wanted to see is a character who has Magneto's powers. And the reason for that is because in the Capcom games, Magneto's moves have never made sense. He just shoots lasers. I want a guy who actually, like, shoots screws and nails and, like, picks up chunks of, like, scrap metal to throw at you and actually does stuff with making metal float with his mind. Not fucking lasers. <laughs> Razor, if you have given birth to Magnor, the red and silver ninja, <laughs> on this podcast, I will hunt you down. I swear to God. I, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna call trademark on that. That OC belongs to me. Fucking. Nobody else can make Magnet Guy. <laughs> It's just fucking Magnet Man with magnets on his wrists and a red and silver ninja outfit. <laughs> okay, speaking of stupid ninjas. Now, I shit on Chrome from a very high height. This whole concept, this petition, everything. I'm sorry for those of you who love him. But you know what? The concept of someone using, like, liquid metal is actually a really fucking cool one. And I wouldn't say no to that. I just don't want it to be yet another guy in, like, the assassin garb, you know what I mean? I think my problem with the liquid metal concept at this point is that Scarlet is already doing all of those things. It's just that instead of metal, it's red stuff. It's yeah. still the same shapes being made out of thin air. 
Like the all the Chrome concept art that's out there has him like turning his hands into blades like the T one thousand, and that's just the way Baraka fights. What could Chrome do that somebody in the game doesn't already do? That's true. And I don't see anything. I think that people just think of this concept and they think of like Glacius's teleport punch where he just kinda like turns into a puddle on the ground. Yeah, but you could give that to somebody else. You could give that to Ray. There's already been the the Cyber Hydro for Mugen has that move. Please, God, no. (laughs) And also, like, my problem with a Silver Ninja is that Silver and Gray are the same color. Smoke is the Silver Ninja. This is also my problem with Chrome, one of very many, because you don't step on my fucking turf. And again, there's a lot of uh, fan art, uh, concept art. The the guy who supports the idea of Chrome being a character the most has commissioned a lot of stuff. Uh, most of it depicts him as a white ninja. A lot of it borrows from the ninja outfits from the Power Rangers movie, so he looks like Tommy. <laughs> Smoke's also too close to the color white for me. I would say that Smoke is the gray ninja, the silver ninja, and the white ninja... But most importantly, he's the purple robot. (laughs) Walk away, Shad. You're better than this. (laughs) This isn't the time. This isn't the place. When we do the smoke retrospective, it's going to be a live recording. Bring your ammo. (laughs) Going to lay you out for everyone to see. All right. Okay. And, um, okay, actually a second answer to that question. There's a very popular horror trope. You are what you eat. And this is, if I had my way, kind of the thing that I would do with Chameleon. Like, you have these characters like Mokujin, who just kind of, like, in Tekken, turns into everyone he's fighting or can become anyone. I would actually like a horrible John Carpenter thing-esque character to be able to consume and absorb the powers of whoever it eats. As a bonus character, it wouldn't even have to be involved in story at all. This is kind of a thing that Darkstalkers did with its shadow character. It would, like, jump from body to body and infect them. That's something I wouldn't mind exploring. I can see that working, especially if you're going, like, the Shang Tsung Flesh Pits experiment route with its backstory, because Shang himself can copy everybody, and he has made uh, spare bodies for himself, like, meat is such a creature. So if, like... An unfinished clone of Shang Tsung got loose, and its twisted version of shape-shifting and move-copying required it to be basically the thing. That would be pretty creepy and awesome. You could actually reboot meat into this. (laughs) I could see that. And lastly, our final question of the night from $500 Sunglasses is... Do you think that the Lin Kuei going forward with the Cyber Initiative had anything to do with Bihan and Kuai Liang's failure in assassinating Shang Tsung? I've always kind of imagined that in a well-written story mode that cut back to the Lin Kuei HQ during MK1, 2, and 3, you would see a scene where, like, after the tournament, or they, they, they're all gathered in the Grandmaster's chamber, and he's, like, receiving the intel that Bihan hasn't returned. He's dead. Shang Tsung is still alive. He failed his mission. And then he, like, okay, Kwai Liang, you're the new Sub-Zero. Go finish the mission. Then he'd, like, go off into his side room and talk to Sector, and he'd be like, so, <sighs> Bihan was our best guy, and he wasn't good enough. 
that does it. Let's start the cyber initiative. And like this would have been a thing that Sector was pushing for because he wants to be a robot. And this is the moment where the Grandmaster decides, okay, you're up to bat. Let's go with your plan. He had his chance. Now it's your turn. Yeah. This has proven that no matter how good a human ninja is, not good enough against the kind of things we face these days. Let's do the robot shit. <laughs> <laughs> I would like that kind of parody, but I have to say that at least in terms of authorial intent, it didn't. Yeah, like there's there's nothing in the actual canon to suggest that. It just seems like they were planning this for a long time anyway. This is not something that'll ever come up again, but the Lin Kuei were already running around in, like, high-tech fighter pilot jets, like B-52s. Yeah. Smoke was a pilot. There was a theme in Tobias's work hinting that they were moving towards becoming more and more technological anyway. I'm sure if, if Bihan had come back from the tournament successful, they still would have asked him to sign up for the cyber initiative. And he'd have probably said no and run away like his brother did, because who wants to be a fucking robot? But I just, I would like to see a connection drawn, because I think that would make it a little more strongly written. Amen to that. Okay, that concludes tonight's Q&A session. Next up is one that I know a lot of you have been waiting for. Oh yeah. Next up, we finally begin the saga of Sub-Zero. We are beginning this by tackling Bihan first. We'll examine his life and times, both as Sub-Zero and as Noob Saibot. His life is a mystery. Warrior with a mask. Sub-Zero. <laughs> I may or may not be learning to play piano for that in anticipation of recording a theme. We will see you next time. Thank you for all the questions. Thank you for tuning in. Please stay with us. There is much, much more to come. We are going to cover everyone. Have a good night. We're done. Get out of here! <laughs> <laughs>